Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I'm one of your hosts, Hattie James. I am your other host, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Hattie. So this is a podcast. <laughs> it sure <laughs> <obvious>. is. <laughs> it's a bi-weekly podcast. This is our Thursday episode. Last week was our Tuesday. Or... No. Words, Hattie. <laughs> Words. This is our Thursday episode, hence why you're either listening to it on a Thursday or looking in the upload dates of Thursday. The last episode was the Tuesday episode, uploaded on a Tuesday. Yes. Our Tuesday episodes are all about cryptids. They and sure are. our Thursday episodes are all about true crime. Yeah. And we switch off who tells the true crime, who tells the cryptids. Last week, I told a train wreck cryptid, and Kevin told an absolutely wonderful, well-detailed true crime. And this week, Kevin told us an absolutely wonderfully detailed cryptid, so I'm going to tell you a train wreck half arse true crime. Because that is the new format. Well, I'm excited about it, because I love your stories. Okay, but this is the problem. I'm picking things that interest me. And the problem with things that interest me is I get them from, like, those true crime documentaries or because everyone's heard of them and stuff. And the problem with that is credibility of the documentaries I watch. And then you look at the sources and no one source says the same thing. And then the sources that you know will be viable. You don't have access because you're poor. Yeah. So this is one of those where I did my best. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Tell me a story, Hattie. Okay, I'm just going to jump right in. Yay! So, Winnie McKinnell was a lady. I love her name. Right out the gate. That's a great name. Winnie. Is it short for Winifred? No, I don't don't know. I didn't look. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So, I didn't say the name she has by the time she's involved in whatever happens but i left easter egg hints so let's see if you catch on okay because this is a pretty this was a pretty famous sensationalized story all right so winnie mckinnell was born january 29th 1905 in oxford indiana to Carrie McKinnell and her husband, a Methodist minister named Reverend H.J. McKinnell. As okay. a teenager, she met a 30 or 40-something-year-old doctor and World War II veteran named William C. Judd. I say 30 or 40-something-year-old because all I can find from the sources is the phrase 20-plus years her senior. Uh, oh. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was fine. It was like the 20s. It's fine. It's fine. That's what they did. not a good excuse but um some sources say when she was 17 and some sources say when she was 19 so i'm gonna say somewhere between the ages of 17 and 19 she married dr judd took his last name as was expected in 1922 and the two moved to mexico sources also say that she expected the perfect fairy tale picket fence life with her new husband but soon found out that this would not be the case as was often not the case when you get married really young to someone 22 years your senior yeah, in the 1920s. But... Yeah. I, I can't speak about today, but in the 1920s, I just, eh. uh, especially since uh, William Judd was allegedly a morphine addict. They get morphine. Oh, 
which he first took for his injuries that he sustained during World War One. His attitude plus his addiction meant he was unable to Hello. really hold down a job. So the couple was Hello. forced to move from place to place, sometimes living very comfortably because Hello. he got a nice job as a doctor and sometimes living in like destitute poverty. Okay. William always called Winnie by her middle name, Ruth, which I found in a lot of sources. So I thought it, I would mention that. I think I know where this is going. Continue. So as you can expect, the instability and financial uncertainty, as well as William's morphine addiction, had brought with it a heavy dose of marital problems. Ooh. Who would have thought uh. is what I wrote right next to that. <laughs> Surprising uh, made- no one. <laughs> these were made worse by the fact that Winnie was constantly suffering health problems, including but not limited to catching tuberculosis in 1930. Ooh. And one additional health problem she allegedly suffered was infertility. And this is at a time when women were expected to marry, pop out kids, care for the house, while the man is expected to hold down a job and provide for the family. And not be so, addicted to morphine. <laughs> yes. And so, by societal expectations, they were both failing miserably at their jobs. Him a little more than others, because he was literally failing at his jobs. Yeah. It's okay, I can speak about him like this, they're dead. <laughs> um... So by 1930, they were living in Phoenix, and Winnie landed a job as a nanny for a wealthy family. Through that job, she met the family's neighbor, John Halloran. I know. Oh, I know what you're doing. (laughs) A 44-year-old businessman in the lumber trade. I wrote, next to this, I wrote, she liked him old. Halloran was described as an attractive, charismatic, active in political and social circles, a womanizer, a party goer, a playboy, a handyman, and I also saw a philanderer. I'm so excited. I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> yeah, despite the fact that both were married, the two became a le- uh, not became. No, they began a love affair, became lovers. They <laughs> they became a love together. affair. <laughs> Some sources say, quote-unquote, by 1930, and some say as specific as August of 1931. So I'm going to say that before our crime takes place, (laughs) at least by August of 1931, (laughs) if not definitely by the time our crime takes place, William decided to open a practice in Los Angeles, and mainly due to their tenuous relationship and the fact that he probably could not afford to take Winnie with him, and also the fact that she had a job, he left her in Phoenix. Boo. They did continue to correspond frequently, though. And around this time, Winnie was working as a secretary for the Grunau Medical Clinic. While at the clinic, she met 32-year-old Agnes Ann Leroy, who was an x-ray technician. And Leroy introduced her to her roommate, 24-year-old Hedvig Samuelson, who went by Sammy. Sammy and Agnes had been friends and roommates in Alaska, but moved to Arizona when Sammy got tuberculosis and needed warm, dry air to recover. Note, everyone seems to get tuberculosis. It was a problem then. There were like whole asylums specifically for vampirism. I mean, tuberculosis. (laughs) (laughs) So Winnie uh, moved in with the two women shortly after, probably because she... You know, her husband up and left to Los Angeles, and she was working as a secretary in the nineteen early 1930s, which as a woman could not have been paying a lot. Yeah. So she moved in with them. Tuberculosis now, roommates. Tuberculosis roommates. Here we are for you. Hey. <laughs> Some sources say that Sammy and Agnes were lovers, 
But again, it's hard to figure out what exactly happened in the 1930s. I have heard friends, heard lovers, legitimately like in a relationship. I have heard just gals being pals. So I'm going to say it's Schrodinger's lovers. We can't prove that they are or they're not, so they're both. All right, then. They were also, (laughs) on top of possibly being lovers to each other, apparently they were also John Halloran's lovers. But sources vary on when this occurred. My speculation is that they met Halloran when Winnie was their roommate because she was actively one of his lovers at that point. But again, he was also deep in Phoenix's social circle, so it is a very big possibility that they knew him and started their affairs with him before that, and it happened to be coincidence that three of his lovers lived together. Winnie eventually moved into her own apartment in October of 1931. I could not find the reason for it. Some people say that, like, some people speculate that it's because the friendship started going downhill. Others speculate that she just got her own place, as some people do. I could not find enough of an explanation to write one down. Okay. I want to say that I first heard about this crime from Season 3, Episode 15 of Investigation Discovery's TV show, Deadly Women. Now, according to that show, it opens up to the scene where Agnes and Sammy invited Halloran and Winnie over to a dinner party. By the way, Halloran's nickname was Happy Jack. I'm going to refer to him as Halloran, though, because I don't like that nickname. So Agnes and Sammy invited Halloran and Winnie to a dinner party, according to Investigation Discovery's Deadly Women, Season 3, Episode 15. Uh, Winnie allegedly saw how the other two flirted with Halloran and jealousy took over. I'm going to stop here and say that this is obviously not 100% credible, as most forms of entertainment are notorious for zhuzhing events up to make them more colorful and cause rating boosts. Right. Like, she she lived with these two while she was having an affair with him and while they were probably having an affair. I doubt it was a dinner party the night before the crime or, you know, the week before the crime. I doubt it was a dinner party after she moved out. That had her, like, wait a minute. They're having, my best friends are having an affair with my lover? What? No, that didn't, that, I don't, I, I can't believe that that's what actually happened. Well, regardless, let's move on. So, um, according to Investigation Discovery's Deadly Women, um, the next night, but regardless, they, 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 one night in the middle of October, Winnie went to Agnes and Sammy's apartment. Now, some sources say that she went to the apartment to confront Agnes and Sammy about being with Jack. Um, others will say that she went there to play bridge. Other people say that she just went there for dinner. Regardless, she was at their apartment. And a confrontation ensued. And this confrontation turned physical. And then Sammy pulled out a gun. All right, so I'm going to go back to saying that I'm poor, and I, I really can't, couldn't afford to get the, the book, that the most well-known book that's like, you know, most people use it. Uh, I'll be talking about it later. The woman was actually interviewed on Season 3, Episode 15's Investigation Discovery's TV show, Deadly Woman. So I did watch that. And what had happened, according to Winnie, was Sammy grabbed a gun to kill her. Or shoot her. She didn't know. She figured she was about to die. 
and she tried grappling the gun away and her right. hand got shot in the process and she knew at that point since Sammy shot her in the hand that if she didn't kill these two women get the gun and kill these two women she was going to die herself that's what she believed okay so they did reasonable belief yes they did and at this point when he needs to dispose of some corpses oh yay god forbid you go to the police and be like so an accident happened and this was self-defense yeah i don't know how they would have reacted to phoenix and arizona in 1931 uh, good point. So, Tell me what she did instead. Her and possibly someone else took two large black shipping trunks and jammed Agnes's dead body whole into one of them. Oh. Now, Agnes was petite. Right, okay. Sammy, not petite. Not so much. Sammy was bigger than Agnes. Sammy could not fit whole into the shipping trunk. So what? Not even if they folded her in half? Mm, No. I'm pretty sure they might have tried. Um, So, what did Winnie do? Well, thanks for asking, Kevin. I'll tell you. (laughs) Thank you. I was about to. (laughs) Winnie, and probably an accomplice, dismembered Sammy. Yeah, she had to have had an accomplice. She had a bullet in her hand. Uh, Sammy's head was cut off. Her torso was separated from her, the rest of her body. Um, her lower legs, sorry, no, her, her, like, I think they kept her arms. They didn't say anything about her arms. So my guess <laughs> is they cut off, they cut off her head, they cut off her legs, and then they sectioned her legs into upper legs and lower legs. <laughs> her head <laughs> torso and lower legs were shoved in the second black shipping trunk but they couldn't fit her upper legs in the black shipping trunk so they got a beige hat box and a valise and in case no one knows what a valise is that's a carry-on bag yeah it's like a carpet bag it's like yeah mary poppins bag yes um, so they put pretty much one leg in the hat box and one leg in the valise is what I'm thinking. Oh, or they put God. them both in the hat either that or they put them both in the hat box and the hat box in the valise. I wasn't quite sure. It wasn't very specific. Basically Sammy's dismembered, half of her's in a trunk, the other half of her's in a hat box and valise. That's all we oh. need to know. That's um, not what the hat box is for. Yeah. Why didn't they put her head in the hat box? That makes more yeah. sense. I don't know. I don't. I'm going to It's mind. not funny. Why am I laughing? My guess, I haven't seen pictures. I don't know what order they were in, but if I had to guess, they stuck her head in the box and then she they stuck her torso and then her lower legs and then we're like, oh, poop. We can't get the upper legs in. Well, I'm not taking her whole body out and playing a magic game of Tetris. I guess we'll just throw these in another box. That would be my guess. Body part Tetris. Yeah. Oh no. That's the name of the episode. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. Um so within 2 days of the murders, Winnie and I say that because some sources say the next day and some sources say 2 days later because again, no two different sources say two different dates of the murder, but she got she, she got the ticket. Okay. 
On October 18th, Winnie Ruth Judd boarded the Golden State Limited train after checking her trunks for transport. Upon arriving in Los Angeles the next day, on October 19th, she proceeded to try and retrieve her bags. Now, here's a little fun fact. If you sever or damage the lupa ball in the abdomen, yeah. all the bacteria inside it will come out and expedite oh. decomposition and putrefaction. Oh no. The that lupa, must have smelled so bad. The lupa ball in the can be just damaged in this in two ways. Uh, a gunshot wound could damage it, and so can dismemberment. Oh. Anywho. Oh. So she went to retrieve her bags. I bet they smelled fantastic. Well, that was going to be my next thing. They were such a foul smell, as well as red, blood-like fluid <laughs> leaking out, which <laughs> caught the attention of the station staff. The baggage agent, Arthur V. Anderson, did what any intelligent, sane individual who came across a bleeding trunk that smelt like literal death would do. He said, well, this must be just filled with contraband, like a dead deer or something. How often must that have happened, though, for him to be like, oh, yeah, that's probably like illicit hunting stuff. It was either... It happened a lot, or it's he just was like that. It's not a dead body. It can't be a dead body. It's not. It's not. It's not a dead body. It's got to be another. Denial is your friend. Yeah, it's one of the two. Um, but Anderson ordered the bags to be held until the contents could be ex- inspected. Um, there's a website called Murder and Mayhem. It that states uh, that website states that it was at this time that he contacted the police, but Murderpedia states that it was at a later date. Regardless, either him or the police, some type of official, asked Winnie for her key, at which point she said that she didn't have it. It was with her husband. All, her husband just told her to pick up the trunks, and she, she didn't know even know what was in it. Um, but you know what? Someone was going to be picking her up, and she would have her husband come back with the key ASAP. And then she had her brother, who was unaware of what was going on living in Los Angeles, pick her up, drop her off at an undisclosed disclosed location, and she vamoosed. so you know my first thought that I wrote down is because you know you think a woman is smuggling some shady malarkey so yeah you let her leave and you let somebody pick her up and you let her go off in the wind with the the positive faith in humanity that her husband's going to come back with the key sure makes sense well, they learned um, something that day. Yeah. Regardless <laughs> of whether the police were called in the beginning, they were definitely called by this point. And the police picked the lock. I don't need to tell you what was in it. I already described what's in it. Don't make me say it. <laughs> Gross. Very badly decomposing dismembered body and a slightly less decomposing not dismembered body. Um, they were able to pretty much positively identify who they were. Phoenix police got involved. Um, but they didn't have, um, they didn't know where Winnie Jod went. She, she, like I said, she vamoosed. Although, um, a, she pretty much turned herself in October 23rd, 1931 at a funeral home. Could not find much more information than that. It was pretty anticlimactic. We're going to move on. 
had this had she like gotten any medical attention for the gunshot wound in her hand, or was she I just like straight up rocking gangrene at that point? I honestly have no clue. My guess is her doctor husband mm. maybe patched her up, but I could not find anything. This was a train wreck. Apparently, you need actual books that my my town's library does not have that costs money that I don't have. So hmm. I'm sure it's in the book, um, yeah. but it's it's not in the interwebs. Yeah. <laughs> well, just cause, uh, just I can't imagine that she would have been like, do 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 do. Off I go to the hospital because as soon as you show them a gunshot wound, they're gonna be like, "How'd you get the gunshot wound?" And she'll be like, "Uh, your mom," and then run away. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. This became very sensationalized. Everyone one wanted to know all about this trunk murderess and what have you, who she was, where'd she go, who are the victims, where was the where was the murder taking place? Cotton all this other stuff. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to stop and say that for, for a disclaimer, um, I'm getting all this information on the police investigation by Murderpedia. Because from what I can tell, the best source of the actual investigation, including probably what she did with her hand, uh, is in a book called The Trunk Murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd by Jana Bombersbatch. Uh, but it costs money and I don't have it. So, it's okay. what we'll have to do. So, the case became sensationalized very quickly. Everyone wanted to know about the trunk murderess, who she was. I already said this, blah, blah, blah. So October 19th, 1931, the police entered Agnes and Sammy's apartment. Now, remember my cons my constant comment I have made every true crime episode of John Mulaney's What Was a Murder Investigation Like in 1935? Yes. Well, you want to hear what a murder investigation was like in 1931? Yeah, I sure do. Tell me. They... <laughs> The police let reporters and neighbors in the apartment to ooh and ah and trample around, destroying not only the integrity of the crime neighbors? scene, but also all the remaining evidence. Neighbors? No, that's not it. That's not it. Neighbors' children? The neighbor, the landlord, placed an ad in the paper selling tickets to tours of the murder apartment. No! Which brought in hundreds, <gasps> hundreds of curious people trampling no! on up. Ooh, ah, let me touch this. Oh, I want a souvenir, because, you know, that's what oh stupid God. tourists do. Um, no, they yeah. took evidence? Probably. Oh, my God! <laughs> that's 100% my own speculation, because I know what happens. Oh, my God! They put, she's just like, here, ten, it was like ten cents. Ten cents a tour. They came in droves. They literally came in droves. <laughs> there's no crime scene left. Oh, no. Like, well, just, there's no more evidence. We'll take the walls with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the police, the police searching what was left of the sad, trampled on, no integrity crime scene. Went through the three-bedroom apartment. We're like, the mattresses are gone. They must have been killed in their beds while they slept. It was premeditated. That must be what happened. And they didn't find one mattress, but they found another mattress in a vacant lot a little while later with no blood on it. But the police said, nope, happened in the bed. 
Oh. Because they had a hunch and screw evidence, you know? <laughs> Back to my hunch. <laughs> okay. Um, at this point, she turned herself in on the 23rd. She was indicted for first-degree murder. The trial began January 19th of 1932, uh, which was three months to the day that the bodies were discovered. Oh, that gunshot moon must have been gross. Yeah. Mmm, gangrene. Well, well she, turned, she turned herself in, like, three days later. Okay. So she turned herself in on October 23rd, but, you know, it takes a little while to get the trial started. Lawyers prepping, all that stuff. <laughs> Gathering the evidence of the poorly tampered with crime scene. Trampled on crime scene. <laughs> crime scene. Trample, trample, uh, trample. Stomp, stomp, stomp. <laughs> now, I noticed this was a this was a thing back in like not modern times. Uh, but Jack was only <laughs> tried for the murder of Agnes. Oh. And since Agnes was not dismembered, and they did not try her for Sammy, she was not tried uh, for uh, improper disposal uh, and you know dismembering of a corpse. She was just tried for first-degree murder of Agnes. That's so weird. I don't know why. Yeah. The defense used the gunshot wound in her hand to argue that Winnie acted in self-defense. And they also stated that she was insane at the time of the murders, but never discussed it in the actual trial. Huh. To say the least, they had a weak case. It was Yeah. Weak. The prosecution, on the other hand argued that Winnie and the two victims had begun um, had begun having uh, problems in their friendship, that the, the relationship was deteriorating. Um, they said that they brought in um, Happy Jack. Can't stand that name. Uh, that they brought him in, like, him as, like, hey, you know, she was having an affair with him. They were having an affair with him. Everyone's having an affair with this guy. Jealousy was the motive. She was so jealous that she broke into their apartment and killed them in cold blood while they slept. Hmm. Questions. I have questions. Yeah. So, February 8th, 1932, a jury found Winnie Ruth Judd guilty of first-degree murder, and after a failed appeal, she was sentenced to be hanged fe February 17th, 1933. Oh. However, there was a 10-day hearing that ruled that she was indeed mentally incompetent, and the death penalty was overturned, and while they did not overturn the first-degree murder charge, they did transfer her from the state penitentiary to the Arizona State Hospital for the criminally insane. Oh, Okay or the mental health ward of the state of Arizona hospital. She was, she was like a prison, but it was a hospital. I don't understand. All right. They, they, they transferred her to a mental health unit instead of a penitentiary. All right. So back to the trial for a bit. As I already said, during the trial, it was discovered that Judd was in a relationship with Halloran, and Halloran was in a relationship with Agnes and... And also with Sammy, and Agnes and Sammy might have been in a relationship, and that it was a big cluster. Yep. But this caused Halloran to come under suspicion as an accomplice. After Someone all, had to help her cut up that body. Exactly. So while Judd was still awaiting sentencing, Halloran was indicted as an accomplice to murder. Judd gave what was considered an emotional three-day-long testimony 
saying things like, I am going to be hanged for a crime that he also did. She told the grand jury that she shot Agnes and Sammy in self-defense and went to Halloran, who helped her by telling her to grab the bags. He dismembered Sammy. He put them in the, the, the trunks. He told her to go to California, and he told her to not say anything else. And allegedly, she also said that he hid and disposed of all the evidence. Oh. However... He was one of them rich, crusty white men from the 1930s. So he had one of them good old attorneys. And the attorney actually made what I would consider a pretty good case. He argued that Judd was insane, so her story was not credible. On top of that, he also argued that Judd admitted the killings were self-defense, which is not murder. Therefore, how can Halloran be guilty of aiding and abetting a murder if no murder took place? Except she'd already been convicted of murder. But she was saying it wasn't murder, and Uh, it was her testimony that was going to get him, um, uh, that was going to get him tried, and since she said it was self-defense, he was saying, oh, well, if it was self-defense, it wasn't murder, therefore he didn't aid in a better murderer, which is so- That's such a lawyery thing to say. It is. But, and the judge pretty much said, my god, I think you're right! And freedom. And that's when I'm going to stop talking about him. Because he pretty much has nothing to do with the story anymore. (laughs) So back to Judd. Back to Judd. (laughs) This is my favorite part of the whole thing. Alright. Between the 38-year period of 1933 and 1963, when she was incarcerated at the, here it is, the Arizona State Hospital in Phoenix, which was the state's only mental institution, she was there for 30 years. She okay. escaped six times. <laughs> what? <laughs> One time, she walked all the way to Yuma, Arizona via a um, an old railroad track <laughs> before she was finally caught. Damn. Damn, girl. Um, Where yeah. were you going? <laughs> what was your end game? Oh, well, she had an endgame because the last time she tried to escape was October 8th of 1963. She had a friend acquire her a key to the front door of the hospital, which she used to, much escape. like Ted Bundy did, walk straight out the front door of the hospital. <laughs> where she then found her way to the San Francisco Bay Area, changed, she started using the area, alias Marianne Lane, took a job as a live-in made for a wealthy family, and lived pretty decently until August 18th of 1969 when the investigation tracked her down and she was taken back to Arizona. So I'm just going to say it. Six years. Oh my god. She was living peacefully as a live-in maid for six years. That's nuts. Yeah. So, when she was captured and brought back to Arizona, she immediately decided to, what I'm calling legally escape, because she likes to escape. And by legally escape, I mean she wanted to either get her sentence overturned or she wanted to get on parole. So, she hired uh, Melvin Belly, who was an attorney based in San Francisco. Okay. And But Belly was not able to... Oh try her case because he was 
he he was licensed in California, not Arizona. It had to be an Arizona oh, liner. Oh, boo. So Belly hired Larry DeBus, who was an Arizona attorney. <laughs> and the two attorneys met with Governor Jack Williams many times. There was a whole parole process going through, but at the same time, they were meeting in secret with Governor Williams, who was like, well, I'll release her if you don't really talk about the case ending, like, if you don't tell people I'm doing this. It was, like, some really shady, like, stuff that would not fly nowadays. Right. Um, uh, the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> regardless. She was released on December 22nd, 1971. And upon her release, she moved back to Stockton, California to start a new life under her alias, Marion Lane. <laughs> back to the maid life. <laughs> back to the maid life in California. Um, in 1983, she was issued an absolute discharge, which meant she was no longer a parolee. She was 100% a free woman, didn't have to deal with like any of the stuff parolees i don't know what parolees had to deal with in the 70s and 80s but if it's anything like it is now pro, lots like no of parole stuff. officer yeah parole officers lots and all that stuff. she no longer had to deal with it she was 100 percent free yeah okay uh so she lived a relatively quiet life under the alias of marion lane <laughs> <laughs> until her death in october 23rd 1998 so she would have been 93 years old i was 10 yeah. Coincidentally, 10 years old. Yeah. Coincidentally, this is also the 76th anniversary of the day she surrendered to the police. Which oh, gives weird. Gives me oh. chills. I have chills right now just talking about it. Like, them whole body front and back chills. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. So, um, at this point, I'm going to talk about the book I was telling you about. Uh, the... Uh, the Trunk Murderist, um, Winnie Ruth Judd, written by Jana Bombersbatch. Cool name. Because this is the, uh, what? She has a cool name. Oh, I thought you said lame. I'm like, excuse Oh, me. no, no, cool name. <laughs> <laughs> Jana Bombersbatch spent years investigating the, uh, the case of Winnie Ruth Judd, who's an investigative journalist, which I think okay. I just said. But initially, her research was intended for a series of articles she was writing for the Phoenix New Times. And she started looking at the, the police reports, old newspaper clipping, eventually even conducting interviews with Winnie. And she eventually went on to write the book I mentioned earlier. Right. And Bomber's Batch believes that autopsy reports show that the cuts were too precise for a woman with a gunshot wound to the hand who only medical experience was as a secretary. Like, she couldn't have done it. So, therefore, it had to have been a doctor who helped her dissect. Um, okay. Uh, and apparently she interviewed a nurse named Ann Miller who said that while she was in the Arizona hospital, a quote-unquote Dr. Brown came to visit Winnie frequently at one time being overheard to say, don't worry, I'm going to confess to everything and you're going to get out of here. And um, on top of it, like, looking at apparently police did talk to witnesses back then. Who would have thought? Oh! Um, Ooh, wow! <laughs> yeah, apparently some witnesses reported seeing a car very similar to Halloran's 
in the neighborhood that night, which she speculates could either mean that, no, he was the one who helped to dispose of the body, or he's the one who committed the crime. There also showed ballistics reports, and apparently uh, one of the gunshot wounds is not, like, it. it's possible that it came from a different gun. And by, I don't think, see, an oh. article I read said, said ballistic reports. I don't think they actually did ballistic reports in the 1930s. I don't know. Or not, uh, at least not what we think of today as ballistic reports. Yeah. Uh, but basically, there's the possibility that there were two different guns used. Okay. Um, so interesting. It's just it's pretty much her um, what her book, what her articles, what when she goes and does talks, what she um, pretty much goes about is talking about how the sensationalized investigation in trial in 1931 to 1932 along with the tampering of evidence due to the miss uh the improper (laughs) preservation of the crime scene poor crime scene etiquette yes um meant that winnie received a poor miscarriage of justice and she believes that winnie should have gotten a a retrial okay now, the problem with this is a lot of people find issues with Bomber Spatch's credibility due to one fact and one fact only. When she was when she started this, she came from it from an unbiased, objective, bird's eye view standpoint. But then she started conducting interviews with Winnie right. and Ruth Judd and became her friend. And critics who oppose her claims believe that bomber's batch could not be objective and was unable to step back and evaluate the tr- from a true non-biased vantage point because once she got immersed and once she became friends with winnie she corrupted her own oh. uh, ability to se- separate the fact from the fiction okay which is actually i can see me. how that's a tough line to straddle it is, and being a history major, if that's the line we straddle every day, is yeah. Um, it's something called epitomology, which is um, the source of the source you're getting. Who wrote or said the source? Are they credible? Where did this come from? What was the context in which it was said? Right. For instance, when you go to my, um, I'm going to plug my undergrad thesis. Uh, I did the comparative <laughs> analysis of the historical representations of World War um two and six different countries and all of them are talking about the same thing but you're looking at the perspective of poland versus the perspective of germany per- versus the perspective of russia and then adding to that the perspective of france england and america all of them say different things they tell the same right. story but a completely different way right and like, uh, you know there's no facts only interpretations who is that did nietzsche say that like it just it that goes sounds back like to, something he'd say, yeah. Yeah, um, it it's just it it boils back down to the minute Bomber's Batch crossed that line between an objective investigative reporter conducting a series of professional interviews to actually visiting and becoming her friend and feeling sympathy for Judd. At that point, she corrupted herself, and she should have, from a professional standpoint, people have said she, say she should have stopped because now. From a investigative journalist standpoint, from a historical standpoint, um, her work cannot be trusted, and that's what her critics say. Right. Now, 
and that say, I feel like. Sorry. Say no. You go ahead. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I. I feel like a lot of like the true crime, like memoir things that I've read, like really kind of some of them do a better job at maintaining that professional distance than others. And I've read ones that are just straight up. I was like, I can see your agenda from sentence one. Oh yeah. <laughs> no. The arguments for why Bomber's Bat should be considered credible is that her um, her sympathy and her empathy actually allowed her to step back and break through the um, break through the impression everyone had the picture they painted of the insane trunk murderess and let her see the human aspect and get the human who apparently committed these atrocious murders get her story. Right. Which I can also see. So it's again, like you had said, it's a fine, fine threshold, and you have to kind of balance on it, because yeah. it, in the in the end of it, it boils down to what side do you dance closer to? Do you dance closer to stepping so far back that you're believing the media hype, or stepping too close and missing the truth? But anyways, that's enough for my ranting. Uh, that's the story of Winnie Ruth Judd, the trunk murderess. That's so cool. See, you said that it was going to be a train wreck. That was really interesting. And Thank like you. you're, and you're like having your perspective of being a history major. That just added another layer of cool stuff to talk about. I really enjoyed that. Thanks. I cut a lot of stuff out because I'm a history major, and I'm like, this is incredible. See, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the trunk murders. Well, excellent you know? job. When did you know when I was talking about the trunk murders? Uh, when you said the name of her lover, because then I remembered that name from, um, don't remember which other podcast that I listened to has, one of them covered this and I remembered his name. Yeah. I don't know if this says something about me or about, um, uh, or 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 what? But I um I don't like I I forget that guy's name. I remember that his nickname was Happy Jack. I had to literally like every time I said his last name, I had to look at my notes. <laughs> I Jack. when someone says Winnie Ruth Judd to me, I'm like trunk murders. <laughs> yeah. There was another set of trunk murders that happened in um. England a few years later, I think. Yeah. There's talk about well, that, murder maps. Yeah. Well, that's like, there's also, like, when you talk about, if, like, we ever cover, like, the torso murders, you have to be like, which torso murders? There were, there's, like, the big one, and then there's the other one that's not as or like, famous. Or, like, if you <laughs> talk about the Night Stalker, which one? Yes, exactly. The original Night Stalker, which one you talking about? <laughs> or the lady killer are you talking which one are you talking about i can think of five serial kills off the top of my head that had that name no originality among them no but then you have things like actually the only let's see the only like really common like in uh, not common but unique names i can think of is like the hillside strangler or like the um, green river killer Green River Killer, uh, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> oh, God. 
We should right probably tell head. people where to find us now. Yes, we should, Kevin. <laughs> All right. You can find us on Twitter at TFAB Monster Pod. You can also find us on Instagram at Truly Fabulously Monstrous, which also happens to be our email address, trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. Email us if you knew the trunk murderous or are related. To- We'd love to know. All right. Well, so uh, join us next week when. Uh, Hattie will be telling us the cryptids, and I will be telling you the true crimes. Yep, so we'll catch you next time. We'll be there, and we hope you will too. Bye! Bye!